Hello everyone and welcome to Gaming from the First Age. I'm First Age and I'm back with a podcast. Glad that you could join me. What are we doing? Well, I think you can probably guess we're going to talk bobbins about tabletop role-playing for, well, the next little while. Welcome, sit down, relax. This one I think is going to be a little bit whimsical. Um, I hope you're in the mood for some whimsy because uh, I know I am. Everybody then must move to prove the groove. Well, I hope in terms of grooving, you are okay, you're well, and that life is treating you as well as we can expect in these, these current pandemic times. But I do want to talk about us being in the groove. And by groove, well, I'm gonna use the urban dictionary definition of groove. Groove, an adjective describing a rhythmic quality of gaming that is emotionally communicative and soulful, used for gaming moving at a steady beat. Yeah, well, okay, see also music. But that's the thing, I am enthralled. And indeed, given that I am enthralled, perhaps I should tell you about the power that got me. So let me quote you the enthrall power. It's a cleric power, it's an attack power, and it's at level 17. And it did me a treat. I'll quote from the dungeon, in fact, it's from the player's uh, handbook. Here we go, ready? You begin reciting a verse from the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. The truths you speak are enough to astound and enthrall your allies and enemies alike. An encounter power, charm, divine, implement, psychic. Standard action, area burst three within 10 squares. Cowdenbeath three, Queen of the South, one. Target, anyone with the game attack in burst. Attack, wisdom versus will. Hit, target is stunned and unable to GM anything other than 4e until the end of their next gaming life. Well, that was the power. And my static will defence, well, it was well and truly beaten, actually. And I am enthralled by, well, various flavours of Fantasy D20, or, if you want, F20. And I'm in sort of this gaming groove at the moment. I seem to have settled into it. Are you in a gaming groove? Or have you been in a gaming groove? And I'm going to call it this urban groove right, instead of a rut because that's too negative. Are you grooving? Well, I am. I'm in a groove and it's very, very positive. It's such fun. But I'm conscious I'm in kind of this systemic groove. I'm in the groove for D&D. And let me elaborate slightly on what I mean by D&D. &D. It, it is D&D. &D. In fact, it's three in the D&D &D family right now. Yeah, that's right. I'm not running a version of D&D three times. I'm actually running three campaigns, all different versions of the D&D family. And that is quite something. And I've written before, I think on my blog somewhere, about the cognitive dissonance that creates when you're, well, trying to run three D20 fantasy role-playing games at the same time. I mean, not exactly at the same time, but you get my drift. So then, three. Well, of the three, one of them, I would say, dropped out and joined a kibbutz. Another left and became 
really very successful for a while. And the third, well, the third is the one that's never spoken about, you know, where people look at their feet and mumble. Now, all three of these games, they produce great sessions of play. They deliver fun at the table and not some, I'm going to say, inconsiderable delight. I mean, they're just fantastic. I've got three groups who have really got something out of each of the each of the games and the game systems have all contributed to that immensely now we're going to take a quick look at those three a little bit later but we're going to go on a journey to get to that groove that i'm in right now now not only am i running three D games but i'm also playing a fourth different D, so i'm giving something away here so the D that i'm not gming and the one that i'm playing is well it's the current one. It's the most ubiquitous one, the most popular one, and the one that's definitely been played the most. And that's the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm playing a quite fun Curse of Strahd game at the moment. And yes, when I'm playing in that game, I am throwing in rules that do not apply, or at least actually I'm finding increasingly they do apply to fifth edition, but they're all optional and we don't have those dials turned on. But anyway, really what this podcast is about is asking a question. Why this particular groove and why now, after all these years, 40 years a gamer? Well, that's the topic of this podcast. So strap yourself in. I mean, if you're into that sort of thing. And well, let's find out. So let's get into our groove. Yeah. And to do that, I'm going to take you back to 1981. Were you alive at that point? Looking at the demographic of my podcast, I'm going to say confidently that you were, but you might not have been. Anyway, 1981 and the United Kingdom and Sheffield, my hometown, certainly my university town, newly arrived. Sheffield, perhaps, oh, perhaps a slightly on its heels steel city in which you arrived on the X-32 bus from Leeds through a Star Wars-like trench of glowering, soot-encrusted walls, cyclopeans staring down at you, intimidating. A city with a hole in the road where a lengthy bus ride would cost two pence, collected enthusiastically by a bus conductor who even got a ticket out of his machine. I won't dwell here on the Sheffield good times and the great city that it is, the nights are fun, the amazing music scene, and in fact our show takes from Sheffield's own 1980-formed Heaven 17's classic intro to We Don't Need This Fascist Groove Thang. True then. And I'm going to have to say true now. But I will note the impact in my life of the Freshers' Week decision to join the not only Dungeons & Dragons Society. I was into skirmish gaming, Tolkien, and had starred in the school play. You might say it was a hobby rather made for me. Well, maybe. I'm certainly still here. So then, 1981. Gaming in 1981. Well, I knew nothing, of course, at the time. And I joined a group, along with some of my newfound friends at university. And we joined an AD&D first edition group. And it's interesting to sort of think back to the gaming at the time when I knew nothing about it at all. It was fresh. It was exciting. And let me introduce to you Will Aylslurper. 
Oh, yes. Yes, he was my Hobbit fighter. Lawful good. First ever character. Now, my stats weren't that great. I think I just rolled the 3d6, you know, in a row. I think they may have allowed some swapping around. I can't remember. I was just I was just being instructed on what to do. And I was told, the first thing I was told was, yeah, you're not good enough to be a paladin. And I, I didn't actually know what a paladin was, but it sounded a lot better than being a fighter, which is what, in the end, I had to be. We played for quite a while uh, in that group, uh, including, as, as I recall, Gary Gygax's uh, pink-coloured and covered uh, meat grinder, the Tomb of Horrors, which was tremendous fun, but in a rather nonsensical way. But yeah, the game was... Well, the game was interesting. I mean, at some point late in Will Ale Slurper's career, and I, I can't quite remember, I have to say, possibly inflicted by a mate DM rather than that particular group, my male hobbit fighter became a female gnome illusionist. And I can't really remember how. I think Polymorph might have been involved. But I have to tell you, it really wasn't the sort of game, or maybe the sort of times for me, where this enforced gender change, and in fact this enforced species or ancestry change, would have been explored in terms of sexuality and identity. There were no depths to this game, but there were a lot of laughs. Yeah, good times. And we played AD&D first edition right through my university years, three years. I got all the books. I read them back to back uh, many times, almost to the point where I think I understood the game. Because it wasn't always, to my mind, you know, entirely consistent. But early on in our gaming, and it would have been in that first year, and I think actually quite early in that first year, when we were just starting to get into AD&D first edition, my good friend, or my new friend, Rick, announced, really, I've got a different one. Should we play that? And I thought to myself, there's a different one? Okay. And he produced this white cover, slightly slim book. It didn't look nearly as heavy or as much as the AD&D trilogy of books. It had a white cover, and what, well, what now is a fairly iconic drawing upon it. It was indeed. RuneQuest first edition. So we did. We played RuneQuest really early and it was early in my gaming life and I think that early I had unwittingly fallen into the Gygax Stafford pit trap and I'm not sure to be honest that I even got a saving throw for that and this I think might sit at the heart and is our first clue on our journey today. How many fights do you want in a session? What are the stakes and what are the risks? Now, AD&D 1st Edition and RuneQuest 1st Edition implicitly take this question and answer it really quite differently. And I wouldn't say either answer is particularly wrong, but they are mechanically different. And I think for me in those early days, one of the things that struck me most about RuneQuest was in comparison to the 1st Edition Dungeons & Dragons game, it constructed the thrill and danger of combat encounters, the fighting, the cut, the thrust, the failed parry, left leg, fall over, tears. It was vivid. And walking back down the corridor at Ranmore Hall after a session of play, I could replay the game in my mind thanks to the rule mechanic verisimilitude. However constructed and shallow, it was enough 
to spark billowing depths of vivid imagination. I think if I could categorise it, I would say that my memories for a RuneQuest session were almost first person. Whereas in AD&D First Edition, yeah, my memories gave me a kind of a third person perspective and somehow through a further abstracted layer. Now, in this podcast, we're not going to run the full gamut of the gamist, narrativist, simulationist, GNS theory here. But the experience of RuneQuest was enough for me to see that, hang on, game design kind of matters. And whilst, you know, the bare outline of what we're always doing in this hobby is the same, regardless of the game constructs used, AD&D First Edition and RuneQuest delivered for me a subtly different experience. In fact, not so subtly, if that it developed for me a way of imagining the sessions in a different way. Now, we will come back to that, I think, during the podcast, but it was impactful for me and is the first clue about why I decided to slightly move away from what I would have regarded as level and hit point games. So, we will need now to wave goodbye to good old Will Aleslurper, whoever they became in the end, as I really did move away from hit point and level games, perhaps for some of the reasoning just expressed. A feeling that I wanted to move into a more vivid mindscape, and that I had found, for me, a step or two forward of simulation game design that would take me there. I think it was something more like that. It was more that than just the feeling that the increasing bloat of gassy hit points was a bit daft. Um, And I think I probably did feel mechanically that it almost jarred. The structured stepping of the levels, the feeling that you were always operating in a bubble, a level bubble, that regardless of the number of levels that you increased, your chance to do anything was always the same. Why? Because the world moved with you. The monsters became, well, bigger, tougher, sharper claws, and your chance to hit Thacko or otherwise was always about, well, the same. So looking back, did it make any difference for you to go up in levels? Well, yes, it did because you could face, well, bigger monsters. But what was the point? And there was something about the level design that I think, well, it jarred a little bit. And I I just wanted something that that I could visualize. Again, back to this idea of a imaginative mindscape, both when in the session and certainly when reflecting on the session after play. So I moved away from level and hit point games. I think almost, almost entirely. Now I say I did, but in amongst the FGU of the 80s that I did, and I did a lot of FGU in the 80s, there was CNS, Chivalry and Sorcery, second edition red box, published in 1983 to, well, 10 out of 10 reviews overall, but typically with a much lower number for playability, not for the newbie. And I don't think Gary Gygax would have been a fan, an adherence perhaps too tightly to medieval simulation through a complex but more adventurously focused second edition over the first. Well, that had me interested, actually, and Shiver and Sorcery was one of my games. It had levels and hit points. 
though I would say that those level and hit points were interestingly split between body and fatigue, with fatigue being more generally recoverable than body, and body levels, yes, they went up, but not by a great deal. So, yes, the level and hit point conceit was there, yes, there was experience points per level, and you could spend uh, experience points in increasing general skill levels as well as your overall uh, main abilities. So it had things about it that perhaps, you know, perhaps there was that level and hit point design in there, but it was done in a different way and a way that I could more readily accept despite the depth of it and the great depth of it, or indeed possibly because of it. Now I played, as I say, AD&D first edition through most of my university years, so I was still kind of on it. And, well, even into 1983, I wasn't a newbie by then. And me and my gaming group picked up and played CNS. Uh, I certainly ran it. And it was for a range of reasons. The depth of it was an important game for me in the 80s. I do wonder if I'll ever get out that red box again. As in, get it out to play. And even the seduction of grog meat with the retro vibe hasn't quite persuaded me to cross-reference my character's military ability formula, reference with class factor, to apply either the fast, inverted commas, or advanced personal combat factor table to give me my blows, tempo in combat, attack parry bonus, weapon damage factor multiplier, two damage by weapon type, and dodge percentage. Phew. Yeah, but you know, actually, CNS kind of works quite well. Focus, Graham. Focus. You can't go back to savoury now. But what I will say in those years is that meeting Wilf Backhouse and playing chivalry and sorcery with him at a Dudley Bug Ball convention will perhaps always remain as one of my most treasured gaming memories. Ed Symbolist was there too. So, CNS, a level and hit point game that I played and enjoyed. I stayed with various flavours of BRP right through this period. Pendragon 2, arguably a flavour of BRP. Traveller, always. West End Games D6, well, and well, countless systems. But you know, I wasn't going to go back to the clunky design of level-based advancement and clumsy expanding sack of hit point thang. <laughs> no, no, not me. Yeah, until I did. So how did I get back? What was the game that not only started me on a journey to games that I thought I would never run again until today, but they appear to be the games, the only games that I seem to run at all? Well, I'm going to get to that next. Now, let me put in a quick break and see if you can guess which game started me back to, well, let's call it Groove Central. And although not much of a clue, I'm going to say this took place around about 2010 or 2011. Don't think too long about it. Just form what you think is the game that brought me back. And let's see if you get it right. See you in, well, a few seconds. Yeah, I feel that break should have been a drum roll, really. But, you know, whatever. So then, the game that brought me back to a level and hit point centric design even if, I'm going to start to give a, give a bit more away, even if it's not necessarily a straight D&D game, maybe you're now scuttling and, you know, rushing around and thinking, oh, hang on, 
So my guess was wrong then. The game, Green Ronin's Dragon Age. Yeah, Dragon Age. So not a D20 game. 3D6 resolution, plus some bits from your character sheet. Uh, highest task number required. Random possibilities of stunt points on the dragon or stunt die, that different coloured die that you get with the game. And I came at Dragon Age, I think through the visuals, possibly through the computer game. And I since have picked up, you know, Fantasy Age and Blue, Blue Rose as well. And I like this system a lot. Um, I think with the broader range of the Age family and the Fantasy Age companion specifically, you've got lots of levers and dials to temper the flavour of the mechanics to fit your own preferences. And I really got into it. And interestingly, the Age system itself, is it calls back to one of the three that I'm running now quite strongly. There's a bit of a clue for later on. So, yeah, I realised that do you know what? Maybe maybe it's got something to do with the Earth's axis. Have you heard? It's recent. It's in the news. You know, we've lost so much uh, water as ice in the poles that the axis on which the Earth spins has slightly moved by, I think, about four metres in the past 10 years, 20 years, something like that. And it will have an effect on our climate. And it's as if my axis has... Well, it's slightly moved. I, I wake up in 2011 and I find a game that, yes, all right, it uses levels and hit points. There's an incremental experience point system. But, you know, it's kind of all right, really. Where was I? Well, I played that a little bit. I ran it a little bit and I enjoy it. But that wasn't the only game that took me on this journey. There are, I'm going to say, two further steps. There may be more, but I'm going to characterise it as two more on my journey into my current groove. And interestingly, it was the Green Ronin, Dragon Age, Fantasy Age group that took me in that direction. The next one, well, the next one was, well, it was 13th Age. And for a while, I described 13th Age as my D&D. Um, and, you know, occasionally I might still do that. Although, no, no, that's not true now. But it's a great game. I still have it. I love it. And, you know, looking at the Yggdrasil tree of game design, it too is a branch and calls back to another of the old family that I'm running now. It's interesting how this keeps happening. But 13th Age, an excellent, excellent game. Now, next, and possibly finally in my journey into my three family members, is the introduction of the first of my three family members. So this takes us to 2018 and to UK Games Expo. For those who don't know, UK Games Expo is our largest game convention, certainly in terms of acreage that you sort of wander about in. Uh, and I love it. I love it. It's going to be on this year, I think, in a more limited capacity. I'm looking forward to probably mostly 2022, where I intend to go for the full time and really enjoy that one. But there I was in 2018, and I was very tempted at the time, maybe sort of partly as part of my experience of 13th Age, to actually jump into the D&D family, quote-unquote, properly. Not that 13th Age isn't a proper game. And I was looking at, well, of course I was looking at the 5th edition folio set. My daughter had recently got into 5th edition through Critical Role. 
And so I had this brilliant thing where with my daughter now, I had this sort of common lingua franca. We were gamers together. That, I, I never thought that would happen, but it did. And so that made even more sense that I went into fifth edition. The slipcase with the three books, I think as the as the weekend was progressing, was dropping very slightly in price and it got down to about £90. Now, I think if I had jumped in there and got 5th edition, I would have gone in a very different direction and would probably have thrown myself onto my sword. Coast. But no, I didn't do that. And instead, I played a demo game of Pathfinder 2nd edition. Now, the big man, Jason Bulmer, was there. I had no idea who he was, uh, but there was an aura of reverence around him and a quiet charisma. Uh, he didn't run the demo game for me. That would have been another uh, big feather in my cap. Uh, but members of the hooded order of the Pathfinder Society did. And they were running great combat encounter demos. And my GM was, was, was very good. He did all the silly voices and everything. And he knew the game very, very well, as you would expect. And I, I loved it. I thought, this is a really good game. I loved, immediately, I could, I'd could i latched onto the action economy within Pathfinder. It, it was visually appealing. Paizo, always visually appealing. But the three-action economy just flowed so well. I thought, well, this is a bit, a bit of a step. This is interesting. And yet it felt, it had all that DNA resonance of D&D. &D. And I thought, well, it's got a lot going here. It's beautiful. It flows well. And it's D&D. &D. It seems quite comprehensive and well-built. Yeah. So I decided in slightly contrary, chaotic good mode, if you like, to head down that road and get Pathfinder 2nd Edition. It felt closer to the core family of D&D, &D, though I have to say it did feel a world away and on from my AD&D 1st &D Edition games. It called back, but it also looked forward. And of course, by then it had been probably 35 years since I'd played much D&D &D at all. Now my good friend Pete, who may be listening, always and bravely threw out demos of, well, the next version of D&D. &D. My goodness, we were a tough crowd. Uh, we just basically laughed at it. Not at him. These games are always very, very good. But it was D&D, &D, so we laughed. Now, he had already found his groove, I would say. He's probably got several, but certainly he had the D&D &D groove. I just, well, I just didn't see it, really. And so this brings me to the first of my three, the one that left and was very successful, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Yeah, it was a good game. Now, I'm going to come back to Pathfinder in a moment. In the next segment, I'm going to talk about the three family members in a little bit more detail and how I found my current groove. If you are a mighty hero, a feud barbarian, or a wily wizard, why not pop by to the gaming tavern to get your provisions before you go out on your wonderful quest? That's www.gamingtavern.uk Actual provisions are not available. Just chitter-chatter. This is an internet forum, you dummies. So, the family then, my family, of three, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Well, there are lots of reasons why I am really enjoying Pathfinder 2nd Edition. I mean, I'll state some of the, some of the simple design elements, if you like, that, that, that form Pathfinder 2nd Edition, that 
have really resonated with me in play. The action economy, I'll, I'll, I'll start straight with that. It's the one that perhaps has been picked out by so many. You know, the, this idea that you can, on your turn, you can do three things, three actions, three pulses of dynamic action. And you can mix and match these uh, across your three pulses. And it creates very dynamic action in play. And it's blissfully easy to apply. It has that combination of, of bringing... Uh, you know, apparent complexity or really dynamism in play with a very, very simple mechanic. And it does it so well that it, it's one of those sort of top reasons why, Path, at least for me, Pathfinder 2nd Edition uh, works so well. I like the way that the criticals and fumbles work on the plus 10 and minus 10, particularly with the maths range. Um, in fact, the maths range is another element to it. It's rock solid. The game has been really carefully designed. It works. It's worked, um, certainly in the campaign I've been running. It supports a really seriously scaling game that puts you into the hero to superhero style of D&D straight off the bat. I, I might say I'm a little bit scared of the maths, though. I mean, you know, take 10 and you're still into your mid-20s with a result with well-skilled PCs at, at about the eighth level. But it feels really solid and the design is such that, you know, the encounter building support that you get there is straightforward and you can have confidence in it in terms of building, I'm going to say balanced encounters, at least knowing what the encounter is going to do to the group that you have and feeling reasonably secure about that. The ranges, well, I don't know, the ranges are probably somewhere in the plus four to minus four range in terms of levels, maybe up to five. As That's kind of the bubble that you will rise with as your characters ascend through the levels of the game. Great classes to, I mean, Pathfinder, you know, the, the with the supporting magic item design that's sort of built in and in, in many ways intrinsic to classes, you look to be able to deliver the fun in iconic ways from a range of the classes and... Most of the core ones certainly will do that. So, yeah, Pathfinder. A core chassis, I would say, ready for subsystems and alterations to build the Pathfinder that you want. It's, it, 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 it's well constructed and has got these like plugins where you can uh, expand the game or indeed even contract the game to one that you particularly rate. The thing about, obviously, the other thing about Pathfinder that I, I probably shouldn't need to mention, but I really ought to, is the great production quality, the incredible support for the game. I mean, since publishing 2E a short number of years ago now, it has mushroomed with fantastic support, well positioned for, for that game. Paizo as a company is terrific. You kind of feel they're sort of quite right on, socially aware, quite enlightened in their sort of social attitudes, I would say. But they're also open. So their SRD is fantastic. Um, Beastury 3, for example, not long out. Yes, I did buy it, the PDF. But it's already available in Foundry, for example, the virtual tabletop, as are all of the supporting packs. It just arrives. Um, it's probably available, um, yeah, it's probably available throughout other VTTs as well and on the open SRD. Very enlightened and, you know, it enables and supports play around their core product, Pathfinder. A, a great fun game but you know here's the thing and I, I suspect this is probably a universal and consistently true of my three family members uh, I'm probably just about into the 30s of my Pathfinder game in terms of sessions I've got to pause there and you know 
have a th- I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about you. I mean, you know, what's your long-term play like? But in my 40 years, I don't think I've played other games quite like these ones that so clearly support and encourage long-term play. 30 Sessions is, it's a big deal for me. It's what I would call, you know, a real developing game that has legs. It's got interest. Um, We're up to 8th level in my Pathfinder, for example, from a standing start at first. And at this cadence, well, it could theoretically run for another... I mean, if, if, if my players are listening and I'm now blanching, but I mean... It could, it could run for another 50 sessions, at least in theory, to take you up to the full range of levels. And the the adventure paths that Paizo put out provide you with published support for exactly this kind of play. And on that basis, a full range of a Paizo adventure path series, which is at least has been sort of something like six books. I mean, the number of books doesn't really matter. It's, it, it's, it's from one to 20 levels. That's a significant investment uh, not only in you know a bit a bit of money, but for the money, look at all that gaming time that you get for that for that input. I mean, it's amazing. That is real long term play. Yeah, and I think that that seems to be true of of this sort of group of games: the level and hit point, gradual progression, lots of support, a lot of published material. And if you're working at sort of I don't know, uh, let's say. Let's say five sessions a level, twenty level games. That's a hundred. That's a hundred sessions. That's a couple of years. Well, yeah. Well, ish. <laughs> um, gosh, is what I want to say. Something. Uh, gosh, yes, that's pretty something. Check out an earlier episode. I've, I do talk about Pathfinder with my good friend Andrew, uh, who joined me in that episode and really uh, helped set out the strengths of the second edition of Pathfinder. I really learned a thing or two about Pathfinder uh, on that episode. My next is the free-thinking one, the one that sort of went off and did its own thing. And I'm talking about, well, Green Ronin's True 20. I have mentioned it before on the show. It's a D20, around about 3, 3.5 SRD-based game. I say based, it's not only sacrificed, some of the most sacred of D&D cows, but has then thoroughly immolated them and danced wantonly on their still cooling ashes. So, yeah, it, it does inherit the th- third era core. Uh, the DNA is there very clearly. But it's done things like, well, it's dispensed with hit points. I always start with that because, you know, at that point, your sort of hardened 3.5 player's jaw slackens slightly and, you know, perhaps, perhaps a touch of drool. It has a wound system and a toughness save versus damage. And I would say a toughness save that does not uh, increment with levels. So, you know, right there, you've got a very different flavour, a different way of thinking about the power levels of the characters. The power system itself, incidentally, the sort of supernatural, magical quality of the game, it's there, but the power system is quite different to what you get in the sort of Vancean progression of, of, of spell uh, spells in D&D. I'd say it's deceptive, it deceived me. Powers themselves actually are quite powerful and their range are quite impressive. The scope of what each power can do varies a little. If you pick well, my goodness me, you can have some immense power from from, from them. The game comes with some really nice supporting uh, design uh, elements. 
conviction, which is a meta currency within the game, provides you with those opportunities to shine. It's 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 like you're a you know it's like your fate points, it's like your bennies, it's like your uh, hero points, and the way that you spend those uh, really makes a big difference to the way the game plays. The handbooks that come with the core of True Twenty are very good. They expand out the options and give you variety in the way that you want to present uh, the way the game plays. The age system, which I mentioned brought me into this style of game, has clearly taken a lot of inspiration from True 20. Wheels within wheels there, I would say. I would say probably one of my big takeaways for True 20 is that, for me, it's a bridge game. And it's a bridge between classic Dungeons & Dragons in the sort of third edition era and RuneQuest. It, it almost brings those two together, a little bit together in the game design. With True 20 and its skill-based system, no hit points, it has all that danger of rune quest. You're never entirely safe. You know, you've got your D20 roll, plus your constitution bonus, plus your armor bonus will give you a result, which you compare against the toughness difficulty that comes in to see what kind of wound you get or whether you can tough out and survive the blow. And, and there are varieties to that. I probably would use a variety to that, which is suggested in the Warrior's Handbook. But there it is. That, that, that's how it works. It, but it also has that sort of power level and richness and variety of Dungeons & Dragons, as well as that, that sort of sense that you're never entirely safe in RuneQuest. It's quite a clever pull-off, actually. I, I think it's done well, and I like it. I even considered using it for other genres which it is fully able to do. I don't, I'm not sure that I will. I looked at sort of like an ultra-modern game and I did look at Reign of Discordia, which is the one of the science fiction setting, which does need a little bit of design work around it. it but it could support a great game. I even, I'm going to say this in slightly hushed tones in case anyone is listening, I even looked at Roll at the sort of True 20 in the Traveller universe. There is sort of D20 Traveller, um, I think some blend of that and True 20 could work. I looked at it. I probably I probably won't. I actually like what I've got in this fantasy iteration of True 20. I'm running it in Greyhawk as it happens. Nice. Really, really nice. Well, there we are. So there's my free-thinking one, along with the one that went away and was quite successful. My final one, well, no surprise to listeners of the show, my final one is the slightly polarising fourth edition of Dungeons & Dragons, which, you know, occupies a similar kind of hero to, well, uh, immortal level as Pathfinder 2nd edition. And given some of the people have been involved in both, there's no real surprise that it's there are echoes, I find, in Pathfinder 2nd edition from the core of what 4th edition uh, produced and those echoes of course are also found uh, in fifth edition i do spend an entire episode singing the praises of what i think will be a great game i say i say think because at that time i hadn't i hadn't run it i'd read it i was confident in my 40 years of history to, to, to pick out what i think is going to be a good game and well i'm now in a position where i can say i'm seven sessions into a campaign i knew it was going to be a campaign game I just knew it. it. It felt so good. It felt so clean and easy to run as a GM. And I think I may now have found my D&D. 
and I think it's fourth edition. Pathfinder I love. I've been running that. That's given me 30 sessions of play. I will continue to uh, use Pathfinder. I've got some other I've got some other campaigns coming for Pathfinder, which in my mind are going to be really, really, really good. Uh, so Pathfinder's still there. 13th Age, I will probably play more than run, I think, but I, it's, it's, a, it's a cunning and clever and fun game. But I think for me, maybe it is the fourth edition. I think I've found my home in this level and hit point, sort of hero to immortal style, heroic fantasy genre. I mean, take a listen to my previous episode where I do sing the game's praises, but um, I have to say it delivers a fabulous game. The role play in and around the game is very strong with my group. It's a lot of fun. Great chewing of the scenery. It's supported and fueled by the game. You know, this idea that it's just a combat game is rubbish. Complete rubbish. The setting, the sort of point of light default setting, which is what I'm, I'm using, is, is, is incredible fun. The players are powerful agents in this setting. The setting needs them almost as much as they have a backstory in the setting. They need each other. Uh, it's strong and, and it's driven as it happens by a really sort of lovely and great set of players who are, are really, really, really enjoying the game. As am I. I really look forward to running it. I mean, the tactical element to the game is 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 there. There's, there's there's no doubt about that, and it really adds to the game. It, it, it you know, I would say that the tactical element is one way of visualizing the action. You know, it's it's there. It's in front of you. Maybe it draws on my sort of skirmish gaming background that I mentioned I mentioned before. I don't know. I th- I think personally, I can work on both the tactical map level, so that presented visualization. Of, of, of action and maybe that's again a little bit of my skirmish gamer background coming in there whilst also kind of at the same time being able to mentally visualize the action and I find that one does not for me detract from the other I mean that I've heard it said you know if you, if you present it all in front of you you can only see it in that way well I don't know I think I think it supports the way that I see things but I don't I don't require it so I like that, and I play lots of other games that are completely theatre of the mind too, and and that's that's that that is also pre- pretty damn great. So fourth edition, I mean, I'm picking up titles still. I mean, shh, I mean, I am, uh, you know, as eBay presents them affordably. I I've got some more. I, I'm, I've just recently picked up about two or three more, which I'm going to add to my collection, uh, and and they're gorgeous books. I have a quick review of a drive-through pod as well, print-on-demand. So some of the titles for fourth edition are available through drive-through and the, the sort of DMs Guild with a print-on-demand option. Not all of them, and that's worked out quite well. And I suppose, well, confessing the weird, I, I do. I've had this sort of daydream. Yes, I have. That the original three-book set of four E you know, the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual had been just updated. The digital file's been updated with errata and the later sort of monster maths and made available in a slipcase for print-on-demand on drive-thru. Uh, so, Wizards of the Coast, you, I'm, I'm sure you'll be listening, um, you have my permission to do that um, now, actually. Please, please. So, yeah, one of those strange daydreams, but I think I think that would do really well. Uh, 4E. I mean, along with my old mucker, Tom, actually, uh, good old Tom, we're kind of both edging a little bit towards Midgard at the moment as a setting, him, you know, in 5e, which is where he, he is, and, and me and 4e. Now, now they're there. There, I tell you, is a crossover. 
across the edition divide. My goodness, yes. I am just loving this version of D&D. I just am. It's just everything about it. It's just, just really, really, really good. It plays so well. So there we are. I suppose that, you know, those are my three. And that's the journey to the current groove. And I think perhaps now I probably properly understand why some groups find their groove and just simply, well, they just simply stay in it. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's fun through the focus. You know, it's really enjoying what you're doing. And that's what this hobby is actually about. I don't feel I've missed out, you know, in my, in my gaming life, you know, which has been amazing. I've played some fantastic games, brilliant games. But it has been great to get back to the genre and to the, and to an extent, the style that launched the hobby and, and appreciate it for the strengths that it has. I mean, you can't really get away, can you, from the visceral thrill when you level up. That level up thrill, come on. I find it recently with my fifth edition Sorcerer, actually, in the Strahd game. It's, it's true for 5e too. Up to fifth level, two magic slots at third level open up. Uh, yeah, I took Fireball. Yeah, sorry. But yeah, there we are. Um, I got another sorcery point to fuel my cool meta magic and a handful of hit points. And it was quite slight, really, in terms of the mechanical uplift for the character in terms of the options that I had compared to, well, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. But it was quick, and the thrill was still there. The simplicity of it, which is one of the strengths of 5e, I enjoyed that as well. I am going to run some Traveller at North Star, our science fiction convention. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to that. So I am going back to one of my old old favourites and running some more of that. So I will slightly break out of the groove for a moment. And I am looking to play some Traveller at North Star as well. So that's, I'm looking forward to that. I am considering running some other things. Simbaroom. I mean, it does use a D20. And it is fantasy, but it's not D&D. Uh, and possibly something outside of fantasy later in the year. I'm, I'm looking at some space opera. I'm looking at maybe running some Genesis. Twilight Imperium is coming, I think, later this year. I might sort of pick up and run with that. But I will tell you that I, I'm, I think I'm into a couple of years in this groove, or, or at least into the second year. And my appetite for the groove is undiminished. I'm having such a lot of fun with it. So, you know, there's going to be a lot more coming in terms of this, probably this trio of D20 games. And I may branch out into some other. I've got Emberwind, which is all things Canada. Go Canada. A heroic tactical style of game with powers it sort of has echoes of 4e in it it's very much its own thing I, it might be that i get to play some emberwind during the year not sure but it's it's gorgeous yeah so there we are let me know if you've been enjoying a groove uh, one of your own it's it's good isn't it leave me a message on anchor if you wish to uh, my email will be in the show notes my address is first.age.games at gmail.com and uh, I'll be interested to hear what you're doing. So I think that'll be it for the episode. Yeah, gaming grooves. Enjoy them. So take care and enjoy your gaming, be it in a groove or otherwise. Cheers. <laughs>